Hey everyone, this is James Mackey and welcome to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. Join us as we cover high-level thought leadership and step-by-step guides on how to make people a competitive advantage for your organization. I'm incredibly proud to be the CEO of Secure Vision, the sponsor of this show and the number one contract recruiting, embedded recruiting, and RPO firm. A thank you to our partners, Greenhouse, the hiring operating system for people-first companies, and Gem, the all-in-one hiring solution recruiters love. Let's go. Uh, hi, everybody tuning in. Welcome to Talent Acquisition Trends and Strategy. I'm your host, James Mackey. Really excited for today's episode. Our guest has a lot of background uh, building and scaling a very successful IT solutions company. And so we're going to be going into exactly what it takes to hire top talent sustainably, everything from interviewing to uh, when you get across that offer to new hires, how to make sure your team is is successful. So it's going to be a, a lot of fun. And today we are joined by Joe Rose. Joe, welcome to the show, man. That pleasure to meet you. I'm uh, happy to be here and uh, and talk about what we've done, and I think hopefully have some interesting conversations about hiring and growing teams and leadership. For sure. And so, uh, before we jump into the topics, I, I want everybody to understand a little bit about you and just like what you do, your point of impact, type of company you run. Could you give us like a like high level thirty seconds to one minute somewhere in there overview on on uh, who you are and what you do? Sure. So uh, I started out of the Navy, uh, and after I was done there, I uh, went to a small media company. And at the time, we were trying to grow this team of uh, developers, and they hired this very senior guy who was going to come in and be in charge. We had a, a partnership with a college, and we were going to hire 10 interns every year. And he got into a fight with leadership that didn't work out well, and they said, okay, well, who's the most senior-looking guy who's got the most wrinkles? Uh, him. He's in charge. And that was me. And so at uh, a very young age, I had to start hiring uh, a lot of people with a lot of turnover. And I think that really helped me develop through trial and a lot of errors. Uh, what does it take to hire uh, good people? You know, hiring that high volume of people every year. I left there, I came to JBS uh, and and really uh, started that same thing at JBS because I think we were more focused at the time of how do we grow as a company and sales and, and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I think we had some people acquisition problems. And my, I have a, a soapbox that I like to stand on and talk about the tech interview and what makes a good tech interview. And so, uh, you know, we started implementing some of that stuff and I was passionate about it. And I think that's when you could kind of see the fortunes of the company start to turn a little bit. And then we started hiring better people. We were more successful on projects. We were getting more renewals with our clients. We we're delivering better business outcomes. And that's when our business really started to uh, explode. I, that wasn't all me. There's a lot of people involved in that, uh, obviously, but, uh, I think even having a person who has a passion for this and saying, hey, this is something we should talk about and do a better job of is a huge deal versus something that's just kind of swept under the rug of, you know, what, what is your interview? Fine. Who cares? we got more important things as a company to be talking about. So I like to think that's how I contributed. Yeah, for sure. And so just for everybody tuning in too, um, Joe's the, the president of a company called JBS Solutions. And uh, Joe actually has a technical background. So you came up as an engineer. Mm-hmm. Yep, I did. Right. Yep. Okay. So I think that's important to note too. So as people are tuning in, when we're talking about how to hire top tech talent, Joe actually has a technical background, which I, I think yep. is an important element here that I'm assuming is going to contribute to how you <laughs> go around screening and interviewing people with a technical background, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, uh, we obviously work with our customers who hire their own folks and have an idea of what their interview processes are. You know, your typical tech interview is. Uh, let me go to the tech manager. What skills do they need? Well, they need React or they need JavaScript or whatever. 
and they get on an interview and they say, well, how many years of React experience do you have? Uh, four. How would you rate your React capabilities on a scale of one to 10? Well, uh, just eight. Oh, okay, great. Eight, eight out of 10 sounds wonderful. Uh, you know, and, and so on. The, the interviews don't really glean whether the person is actually good at programming or not, but they're, they're more of your traditional, uh, how many years of experience with this thing do you have and how comfortable do you, are you with it? And don't dive much deeper. And then there's a whole lot of soft stuff. What would you say your biggest thing you need to improve is? And what would your peers say about you? All that kind of stuff. And that's all well and good. But I think, uh, you know, the, kind of the dirty secret of the programmer industry is sometimes you need to hire people who, who are introverted. They're a little less outgoing and social and maybe don't answer some of those questions as well. And you need to focus more on their technical capabilities and less on their ability to impress HR people because HR people tend to be pretty personable, right? So they can, when they're evaluating tech talent, they can over-index on that. I like that guy. He was nice. I like that guy. He was outgoing. They could be terrible programmers and then you fired a bad engineer. So what do you like when you're working with your HR and talent counterparts over the years, how do you help them set up their screening calls to make sure that they're only getting through the technical talent that actually is going to have the skill set that you need them to have, right? Because you don't want your calendar booked with a bunch of people you're going to pass mm-hmm. on, right? So how do you kind of optimize that conversion rate? So the folks that are sending you are at least making it to the round after you, right? Sure. Now there's a, there's a, a quick tech screening that we'll do, you know, five questions that, that are very, very easy. And that eliminates, I think, uh, 60 or 70% of the candidates, you know, our, our, our interview pass rate is still 40%. Uh, so we're, we're still interviewing more bad candidates uh, than good. But prior to doing that, that, hey, answer these five simple questions, it was much worse. I mean, we were we were failing eight out of every 10 people uh, we interviewed. I don't think it's a fair expectation for you to set on a recruiter, someone who's not technical, that they will be able to fully screen out whether someone is a good engineer or not. I just don't think that's that's reasonable. So I think you almost have to have a process in place that that has that understanding that you know the candidates you get are only going to have a certain amount of vetting. So start out with a 15 minute get to know you with those five technical questions, then do a half hour tech screen, then get into that longer format interview. And you're, you're basically trying to glean, you know, as, as soon as possible, whether this person can hit the muster or not, but you don't want to invest two hours in an interview if you can invest a half hour first and, and see if, you know, if they're any good or not. So what's, yeah. And that's actually this interesting thing that comes up a lot in recruiting circles is when to place the tech assessment or tech test rather, because mm-hmm. some companies do run into the issue where they put it too high in the funnel, uh, excuse mm-hmm. me, like the interview process too mm-hmm. too close to the beginning is a more clear way yeah. of saying it. And so candidates have no buy-in. So they're like, why the F should I yep. you know, yep. do this for you when you haven't given me anything to be excited about? So, and it's, what's interesting is it's not the same for every company. Like some companies mm-hmm. seem to be able to get away with having it higher toward the, like more toward the beginning and then other companies, not so much. So what's, what's been your like learning curve there? And what have you seen be effective with, in terms of when to, when to actually do the tech test? Sure. No, I, I think if you're Amazon or you're Google or you're SpaceX, you know, you have a reputation where you can basically make a candidate do whatever you want. They, they are eager to come work for you. The rest of us don't have that luxury. So having someone with a take-home programming uh, exercise or go to a website and fill out this hundred question questionnaire, they're just not going to do it. There are other jobs out there that pay you know, competitively and competitive benefits, all that same work-life balance that aren't making them do that. So they're going to go the path of least resistance. So you have to strike, you're absolutely right. You have to strike that balance, especially as competitive as the market was, you know, 18, last 18 months or so. It's, it's, it's eased a little, but not completely. 
so that's where I say, you know, five simple questions, five questions that if you ask me off the top of my head, I'm just, I'm going to know it instantly. And you can really screen out a lot of terrible candidates just with five easy, simple questions. So Python those- question might be, what's the difference between a list and a tuple? And if you've ever programmed Python, you're going to instantly know, boom, you know, here's the answer. All right. So those questions you're asking, the expectation is that they are giving the answers on the screening call with the recruiter. Yes. Yeah. And the recruiter okay. has the answer key right in front of them. And the, okay. the questions are not such that the answers are uh, impossible to understand. Yeah. Right. So if I said the difference between a list and a tuple is you can change a list, you can't change a tuple once you once you create it. Like a recruiter can understand that. They can listen to a candidate <laughs> describe that answer, know whether they're right or wrong without having to have a degree in computer science. So when you, you know, five simple questions also need to have five simple answers. So like what are your thoughts on chat GPT? Like, do you feel like that's gonna throw a wrench in this strategy? Like, is it is it gonna be able to just spit out the answers that people need now? You can always tell. Yeah. You can always tell. Human beings, if I ask you, uh, what's your belt size? You're going to say 32. You're not going to say processing, processing, <laughs> yeah. processing. You're 32. not going to say so, there's a variety of factors that may influence that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, more, I'll right. be honest with you. It's tough to tell people cheating on an interview. The biggest indicator yeah. is the lag. It's it, it, Other than that, it's really hard biggest to tell. Biggest indicator you know, is the lag. If you ask them an easy sure. question and it takes just as long to answer as a hard question, and there's that 10 second, 15 second pause, and, you know, that's why I have them doing interviews on video. Obviously, is it, you have to, you have to yeah. see if their eyes are <laughs> scanning like, left to right. Like, you know, go ahead. Yeah. yeah video interviews uh, and then the lag. That's, you know, that's kind of interesting. That's a, a point that I actually haven't heard of before, which seems kind mm-hmm. of shocking because it's like, as soon as you said that, it's like, duh. But I never actually thought about that. And we've hired, you know, of course, a ton of technical talent for, for our customers. But you're right. Like, if there's a significant lag, then that's it becomes quite obvious, I'm, I would yeah. hope, right? It's pretty, yeah, and, and, and we ask that. questions that stack, so they're harder to Google. Right. So right. what's an index in a database? What's the underlying data structure? What's the big O notation for adding data to that data structure? So you see how those questions stack on the previous question yeah. and answer. That's hard to Google that kind of stuff. So there are yeah. ways you can structure the interview to make it more difficult to cheat. Yeah, that's uh, that's really smart. Do any other? So we ha- we came up with three. You came up with we. That's very uh, uh definitely not we. You did. Uh, <laughs> so the the biggest ways to tell someone's cheating. It's uh okay. There's a lag, or th- just mm-hmm. to make sure they don't right. Like to tell if there's a lag. To do a mm-hmm. video interview. To ask mm-hmm. questions that stack. Is mm-hmm. there is there anything else that you would recommend? Uh, hard, hard work, honest. reference, reference checks. Yeah. You know, the, the, the people who are doing the cheating, uh, you know, if you can, if you can get it in a miracle world, if you can get a blind reference of, Hey, I, they worked at this company. I know somebody over there. That's the best way to validate someone. If not, you can, you can try to do a reference check and just poke around the edges. Yeah. It's, it's it, it is tough. I mean, is, is there any way to truly know that someone isn't cheating? No, no. Uh, but you can make it a little bit harder on them. Yeah, for sure. And I think too, it's like if people are in that mindset, they they may just if you make it too difficult, they may just kind of drop out, right? I uh, one one method yeah. that I did. This is like, you know, more maybe like a typical, I don't know, uh, recruiting HR. I wouldn't say it's typical actually, because not a lot of people know how to do this. But one of the things that I will always do when I was a hands-on recruiter is like I would talk about reference checks in the screening interview. So mm-hmm. I would be like, hey, like, Eric, just so you know, the last step of our process is we're going to check yep. references from previous direct managers. 
um, what's the name of the manager at your prior role? Okay. It's, it's Joe. Okay. Joe, Joe Rose. Okay. And did, was he your uh, direct manager? Yes. Okay. So when I speak with Joe, how is he going to rank your performance one out of 10? And for whatever reason, when you, when you phrase it like that, like when I speak with Joe, people have a tendency first, it kind of takes them out of their pattern, right? Like you're breaking a pattern and it throws them off and they're, they answer a lot more honestly. So I've had like plenty of people say like six, you know, and, and you're looking for at least an eight, but yeah. I also, I follow that up and I, I would say, um, okay, so they give you an eight, which you want at least if it, they're not an eight pass, right. Um, mm-hmm. just to be clear, cause people, they do tell you the truth, uh, when you do this, by the way, but, uh, then the next question is like, okay, so what will Joe say you do exceptionally well? What are you best at? And you give them an opportunity to brag about themselves, like what they're really good at. Give me an example of that. What do you think about that? Or how did you do that? Or, t- you know, you can kind of dive into details, right? So they might say like, oh, well, there was this huge problem with X, Y, and Z. And so this is how I went about solving it. So it's another way to kind of just dig deeper as well. But then the the, the other reason you're asking that question is so you can ask the next, next one. It's like, well, what is Joe going to say was an area for improvement? Maybe something you didn't do as well at. And again, people are pretty honest. So then you go down that rabbit hole. And I've had candidates tell me like, you know, that they got in like verbal fights and, you know, all sorts of shit. And so it's, you can actually glean a lot. And what's interesting too, is that the, even if somebody hypothetically were to uh, lie, usually they're going to ghost you. If they, if you've told them you're going to check the previous direct, uh, then they're not going to follow up. Now I will be honest, like candidates usually hate, like if I was to post about this on LinkedIn, there would be a ton of like people in the world that would just say, yeah, like, oh, you suck. You're wrong with yeah, you're you're, corporate America. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm... Like, Oh yeah. Uh, screen people in, not out. It's like, you know, that kind of bullshit. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the thing is, is that um, I would just say like, you don't necessarily, somebody doesn't necessarily need to be able to get a reference from all the previous direct managers. Like if there was a reason that they can't, then obviously employers need to be reasonable and take certain things into consideration. Like some companies may not uh, provide background checks or excuse me, reference checks. Like it's just, mm-hmm. it's it's legally not something that, or it's a policy that they don't do it rather. Um, you know, some people might've had uh, some type of like abusive manager leadership. You know, all of these things are, are legitimate reasons. Somebody could even say like, look, I'd rather not get into the details. However, I'm not able to provide a reference from this company um, or I'm not comfortable. Like, those things are still okay. It's not that you have to, it's like a hard and fast rule, but we do have to make kind of a judgment call based on the feedback that we're getting from the candidates. Right. And so I always found that method incredibly helpful. And it really helped me clear out my pipeline with people that I knew were more likely, you know, that, that I wanted to be down funnel, if that makes sense. Yep. No, it does make sense. And I think it also helps capture some of what we've seen a lot of in our industry, which is fraud. You know, if you're Mm -hmm. working five full-time jobs at a time, I, to me, that's that's fraudulent. There's no way you can put in that many hours. But they're a company. There are people out there doing it and doing the bare minimum on a job for two weeks and then disappearing and still getting paid and going to the next one. And so yeah. when you start talking about reference checks and you're going to be talking to the manager of their so-called primary job, they, they start to sweat a little bit. Like, no, I don't want the company to know that I'm interviewing for other jobs because I still work there. And, uh, you know, so that it can it uncover some of that right. stuff too. And that's tough too, because like one of the things, right, that can help clear that stuff up is if they put 
like your like the company name on their LinkedIn profile when they start a new mm-hmm. job, right? And like there's that whole argument, mm-hmm. like, well, that's my personal LinkedIn profile. So sometimes we've actually had customers too. It's like, you know, set an expectation in the interview process, like, hey, we're aware this is your personal profile. However, while you're working here, you are representing our brand and there's an expectation that boom, boom, boom. Yep. You know, yeah, we so, do that. Yeah. yeah, you do. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. um yeah. that's something I think we do as well. Um, which I mean, it's only happened to us one time where I and I guess I technically don't have evidence, but like we hired one guy it's like a couple of years back where like he didn't update his LinkedIn profile. He's being super cagey and weird and like we you just get the vibe, right? We're just like we, we had that happen twice this year. Yeah. It's yeah, and I like think they're not wanting more... to update their LinkedIn is a is a red flag of you know, it's not like it costs you a hundred bucks to do it, you know? Yeah. All right. So you're either embarrassed to be working here, which ain't good, <laughs> or, or there's something else nefarious going on. Like there's no good answer as to why you wouldn't want to update your LinkedIn. No, there's no legitimate answer. Like people will no. take like a privacy stance or it's like, oh, BS. Like, why do you have a LinkedIn then? Oh, I, like, I completely I agree with everyone's right to privacy. Oh, me too. I'm just saying, I think it's but that being said, say it, you know, like, LinkedIn is not about privacy. Social media is not about privacy. You're you're putting that information out there for a reason. So I don't think it's unreasonable. Now, if somebody said, I don't have a LinkedIn profile, so I have nothing to update on. Okay. Care. Great. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to argue with you. But if you have weird, one, but... you're, you're already not private. You know, you've already kind of crossed that, that threshold. Right. What What are you using it for exactly? If <laughs> like if not to reflect where you're working and building your network and your brand? Right. I don't know. Right. Yeah. Yep. Well, agree, agreeance on that. Um, well, so let's see here. I think, um, you know, let's like from a cultural perspective, right? Like there is, we, we kind of got into how to recognize or how to optimize interview top of funnel interviews to ensure that, uh, we can hopefully get skilled talent, technical talent. That's actually good and competent, uh, in our funnel and to clear out the ones that maybe are not the right fit. Let's, let's talk more like culture, common sense, not always so common, but just general high level kind of things that you look for when it comes to, how they're interacting with with you and the team, if you think that they're going to get along with their direct managers, or is there any other kind of like more so soft skill advice? I know that obviously, particularly on the engineering side, there's going to be a lot of introverts. That's not really what I'm referring to, but just in terms mm-hmm. of somebody's ability to communicate and collaborate internally with their team, is there stuff that you look for and how do you vet that? I, uh, bluntly, I would say it's lower on our totem pole than the actual pure technical skills. I mean, for, for someone who's, who's a developer, they might spend 30 hours a week in front of their computer and 10 hours a week with their peers. And so if you're interviewing for the 10 instead of the 30, are you really focused on what they need to be, what they need to be good at? That's not saying that we don't have a strong emphasis on this point or we ignore them altogether, I should say, but it's not as strong an emphasis for us as the, as the strong technical skills. So what we try to do uh, is give uh, what I would call a progressive scale of difficulty uh, on our interview questions. They start out easy, get progressively harder and harder and harder until we get a candidate to say that they don't know. And uh, I haven't met one that we haven't been able to stump yet just because you have a bunch of experts on the phone in a bunch of different fields. Nobody can know everything. What's interesting about that, you might think, okay, well, that's a great way to get their technical background. How do you get their people skills, their soft skills? Getting someone to discuss that they think they know an answer, but they're not sure and you can give them hints and, and tease them towards a solution, it, it becomes more interactive. You see how they discuss technical ideas. And frankly, you can see what their temper's like. 
We've interviewed people where they, it was clear they did, they weren't getting the answers. They got frustrated. They got mad. Some of them just up and leave the interview. That's not somebody we, we want to work with. So it's, uh, it's kind of the two-faced way of answering your question of me saying it's not important or we don't focus on it, but then also saying it's something to get, you know, a lot of detail on and the technical aspect of it. It's, uh, it's true. I mean, we, we do get a lot of soft skill stuff when we're, when we're heavily focused on the tech stuff. So I love that. <laughs> I love that. You know, it's also kind of funny about that too. It's like, I imagine if I was like on one of your interviews at towards the beginning, be like, oh, I'm crushing this. Like, do it so <laughs> that's that's how it should feel, right? You want to build right. some confidence. Because right. you do have to get people over that nervousness, right? Of yeah. uh, imposter syndrome or did I study enough or or whatever. And and so giving them a few, you know, if if you want a football reference, give them a few check down passes, get get some completions in the belt before you have them throw the ball down the field, you know? Warm yeah. up that rookie quarterback a bit. Yeah, that's uh, that's really good advice. I, we've covered so much practical good advice that folks can implement already. I uh, I'm really I'm really all for it. This is good stuff. We in the in the prep we discussed hiring for leadership, and mm-hmm. you mentioned that you had better experience upskilling individual contributors into leadership roles rather than hiring leaders externally. Can you walk us through your philosophy? Get into tactical how you really do it couple stories, sure. stuff like that. Sure. I mean, uh, it, in my opinion, you know, finding out if someone is a good leader or not, it's incredibly difficult to do. It's almost something that you don't know if they're good at it until you see them do it. Right. Cause it's, there's so many facets to, to being a good leader, uh, setting a good example, uh, being respectful, giving people dignity, uh, you know, mentoring and, and so on that to think that you can, derive how a leader is going to behave in a work setting in an hour or two hour, even four hour interview, I think is a bit of a stretch. I think it's very challenging. So our philosophy is, you know, 99.9% of the time, we're going to promote leaders from within. We're going to take our, our best technical people uh, out of our hiring pipeline, hire them. And the law of averages say that maybe one out of every 10, two out of every 10 people that we hire is also going to have some leadership chops. And so we're going to develop that leader. You know, we're going to put them through kind of what I call the pyramid of leadership. You know, you learn, first thing you have to learn as a leader is how to set a good example. So that means being a good individual contributor yourself. That's that's the fundamental uh, thing that you have to do. Because you can't have a leader telling people not to be late when they show up late every day or telling people not to be lazy when they are themselves lazy. And then from there, you have to learn how to lead other people. And and by that, uh, you know, a, a leader leading individual contributors, it's that, that first tier in, in the pyramid. And so, you, you know, the general philosophy there is you want the people you are leading to be doing as good a job as you would do if you were doing it yourself or better. Like, you know, how do you get them to be doing things the same way? And, and so that's from the behavior control element of it. Like you, you need people to do things a certain way, make sure that happens. The means are really important too. You know, you want to inspire and motivate people to do stuff. You know, there's a, there's a carrot and there's a stick. You want to use more of the carrot than, than the stick because, you know, we're not, we're not in the military. You, you, you know, you're not going to get you, you know, screaming in people's faces is not a great way to motivate people in a business environment. You know, you'll see a short-term lift in productivity for maybe a week or a month, and then it'll just collapse after that. Um, so, and then you, so we, we get our people, put them in the funnel. We find one or two, they learn how to lead individual contributors. And then you start to say, okay, of the 10 people we have leading individual contributors, who are the one or two who can lead other leaders, who can teach other people about leadership and train them how to lead and you know, listen to them talk about what's going on with their team and give them pointed advice, you know, 
Because every leader at some point, they're going to have someone that works for them that they don't understand what makes that person tick. So, you know, uh, me, I'm, I'm more blunt. I have a problem with passive personalities where if they don't like something I'm doing, you know, like, hey, uh, how's it going? How, how are you enjoying your interactions with me so far? Well, you know, hey, it's great. You know, the, other people would queue up on that and go, hey, that was a somewhat reserved answer. What's going on? Talk to me. And I'd be like, okay, you said it's great. It's great. <laughs> and, and it could be the opposite side of it too, the people who are real passive and, hey, uh, maybe you could get better here. And they're talking to somebody who's an introverted, blunt guy. And he's like, maybe doesn't mean anything. I'm just going to ignore the guy. So, you know, that's that next tier. And then on and on, how do you set a strategy and a vision for an entire company and all that? But generally speaking, you, it takes months, it takes years to have people move from one level of the pyramid to the next. And it's a two-part process. You're training them, you're giving them feedback. Here's how you get better out of it. And, at the, and you're also saying there's some underlying natural talent in there too. Some people have it, some people don't. And so you're recognizing that and bringing it to the surface and kind of straining out the best. Yeah, I, th- I think so. And, and I, I think emotional intelligence is kind of buzzy. I, I mean, for me, it's 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 like, I think sometimes it's it's a bit instinctual, like people that ha- get it, have it, have it, where mm-hmm. you need to be able to read somebody to some extent and determine a little bit about how they're wired. And I guess the part that's like, in how they feel about what you just said or, or their own performance or whatever else. The part that can be, I think, more easily trained is like how you respond to that. But you can't be tone deaf. You have to be able to pick up on nuances and conversation, body language, yep. tone, word choice, and be able to interpret that and then kind of customize a response to get the most out of that person to help them be the best version of themselves. And so to me, that's like the biggest, the hardest part It's with finding a good leader is like, you know, sometimes people have a tendency to, you know, they want to, they want to lead people the way that they would want to be led. And the reality is that leadership is very situational and you have to understand the personality that, you know, that you're working Mm -hmm. with and you need to help them learn in a way that is going to be well-received by them. So if like, we're, you know, if I'm super type A, blunt, straightforward person, but I'm working with somebody that is, you know, the polar opposite of that, if I go in there and just say, you got to do this, 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 and that, let's go pick it up. You know, that person is not going to thrive. In fact, in fact, they might even collapse and their performance is going to get mm-hmm. worse. They're going to be very stressed. 100%. Their cortisol is going to skyrocket and they're just going to have a terrible time. And so you have to know like how to make that adjustment. And so that's like, sometimes, you know, you have the people that are super ambitious or whatever, um, but they also have to learn like, Hey, to lead means it's situational. It's not a one size fits all. You have to know the different personalities on your team and how to get the most out of them. I, I will say that I've typically promoted the people that are the best ICs. I think that there's, I've heard, I think everybody's heard this. I just, I haven't really found it to be true where they say like, well, you know, somebody doesn't have to be a great individual contributor to be a great leader. Sometimes people are better at leadership. I'm not saying that every great individual contributor would be a good leader. However, I'm saying that like every good leader that I think I've worked with was at least pretty damn good at their job as an individual contributor. I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on that too. Yeah. You don't have to be a great programmer to be a great leader, but you do have to set the example. You have to do the underlying things. I'll show up to work on time, work hard, uh, you know, check in your code at the end of the day, like you're supposed to update your, tasks and Jira, like you're supposed to make those fundamental things. So I would agree with you to an extent you, you don't have to be, um, 
a guy who's winning programming contests left and right to be a good leader. But you you do have to do the things, the baseline expectations, you know, the kind of the um, the non-talent based, in other words, parts of your job versus the actual peer programming is is more talent based. Um, you know, it's, it, I kind of think of it uh, this way. You know, there's one piece of advice that I would give someone, and and I'd say ignore everything else I said, but just remember this one thing: as a leader, it's it's easy to feel good about something you're doing based on the noise you're making. I gave a really confident speech and it felt great. I had a talk with someone and I empathized with them and it felt wonderful. But leadership is measured by its results, not by the noise you make. If you're not affecting a change in behavior, then whatever you're doing is not working, no matter how good you feel about it. So, you know, keep that in mind. And and so back to your point about, do they have to be a good uh, individual contributor uh, or not? People who have that ability to measure what they're doing and improve versus the people who just kind of coast and are unsteerable ships, you know, they tend to be good individual contributors and they tend to be good leaders because they have that ability to watch and observe and what's working, they keep doing and what's not working, they stop. Yeah, they're adaptable. They continuously improve. They're intellectually curious, Mm -hmm. not only about the technology they're working on, but the people they work with. Humble. You got to be able to admit that you did, no matter how good you felt like something went, there's some aspect of it that you did wrong that you could improve on. Right. And if you're really ambitious and you really want to be the best, then you need to have enough humility to work on yourself. Mm-hmm. Like if you just Absolutely. put this wall, like I can, I can never do any wrong. Then like you're ultimately going to stagnate because at some point you've stopped yep. learning. And I, you know, quite honestly, a lot of successful people I know get to that point where it's like, You'll even talk to them like, oh, do you, what do you like do outside of work? Are you working on anything, taking any classes or do you have a peer group? They're like, no, I already know all that stuff. It's like, yeah. Okay. But you've been in the same position for the last 10 years. It's like, maybe you don't. What's I think that's really challenging. Think about, uh, take a guy like Elon Musk. Uh, who is sitting in his inner circle telling him, Hey, you fucked that up. I hope so. Probably. (laughs) But probably not people that, that he's friendly with. Right. For the most part. You know, the higher up you rise, the more you tend to get people who just say, you're doing great. You're wonderful. Thank you. You know, there's, there's a certain fear of this guy can change my pay or this guy could, you know, whatever. And so the, the higher up in the leadership ranks you get, the more difficult it is to get feedback. That's not just people blowing smoke up your butt. So you do have to have mm-hmm. tremendous, at least try to, I, I try and fail. I don't tear, I have a huge ego. You, you do have to try to have that sense of humility of, I, I have to realize that it's something wrong here. And I also have to realize that it's going to be unnatural for people to tell me what it was or where I can yeah. improve. That's where you got to be able to read people, right? Like mm-hmm. if somebody's mm-hmm. giving you feedback, like if it's the real thing or if there's something to uncover and how to like yeah. tactfully push and help people feel like safe yep. and kind of t- tell them quite honestly, like, I don't want, yes, men or women or you know, yep. I don't, I, I, I want people that are legitimately going to partner with me and help us be the best version of ourselves. Like this isn't about, uh, you know, my ego, this is about, you know, it's really going to boost my egos getting a scale in a very successful company. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you know, I mean, like at the end of the day, it's like, let's focus on on our job is to create a, a, a profitable and sustainable business at scale. And mm-hmm. uh, if we're doing that, then we can pat each other, pat ourselves on the back. I don't care about being tactically right about one decision. I care about our five-year plan. Um, and, and you have and, to tell people that. Right. Yeah. You, yeah, you, you do. You can't just assume that they know that. You have to tell them like, hey, I want you to hurt my feelings. I want you to give me feedback. If there was one thing, and there's ways you can sneak around it, you know, uh, like, Hey, uh, well, how do you think that went? Oh, it went great. Then you'll get, you'll get a nugget. 
their hand a little bit. Like, give me one thing I, I better listen to better or whatever. So yeah, that's no, yeah. tough. It's that. Yeah. Saying like, well, I really, that went great. I didn't think it went that great. Or I thought we could have done this or that, or, you know, I think too, it's like, um, you know, give them maybe, something, you know, you messed up. I really right. know I fucked that up, it, yeah. you know, and then they'll, they, at times of the pile on and you're like, geez, all right. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's like anything else too, uh, you know, with employee surveys or like you're, you're just conversations, right. If somebody gives like feedback on an improvement, if you can do it, do it. Like if you can make mm-hmm. the shift, right. Cause it's like when employees ask for improvements, if, if you never act on any of them, then they're going to stop giving them to you. Right. And so yeah. it's, responding in a way that makes it feel welcomed, like not getting defensive. And it's also actually trying to implement something. And sometimes you can't because sometimes people will recommend things, but they don't necessarily have your perspective because they have a different point of impact in the business. And they just don't see like, yeah, this would be great for an individual contributor, but this isn't going to work for us at scale at this point Mm -hmm. of where we are as a company. So, but like still like giving them that feedback and explaining, okay, this is what we can do. We can't do this because of this XYZ implication, uh, implication, right? and, and we that's we try to be transparent on stuff like that. Why don't we have much better X Y Z paternity policy or PTO policy or pay scale X Y Z? You know, it's uh, at the end of the day, we are a for profit business, and there are certain financial parameters that we need to operate the business under. And so that's why we can't. You know, we don't make the same money that uh, Amazon or Google does. That's why we can't pay like Amazon or Google. We're going to try to make your life happy some other way, whether it be culture, work from home. Uh, tapping your week at 40 and not bothering you on nights and weekends, whatever, you know, the kind of stuff that those other companies maybe don't necessarily do as good of uh, a job at, but it goes back to, to me, the, the transparency is really important. Yeah. It, you, you either have to give them the, the yes they're looking for, or be really transparent about why you're telling them no. Yeah. I, you know, it's not rocket science, right? Like, but it's still a lot of companies mess this up. And one of the, th- you know, one of the things I like talking about when it comes to attracting talent is you don't reference Elon Musk earlier, like you don't need a mission, like we're going to put people on Mars to attract great talent. Mm-hmm. And you don't necessarily need like the top percentile of comp. Like I say, it's always good to target like 75, 80% percentile mm-hmm. and compensation, but that's usually where it's like, it's aggressive, but it's sustainable because mm-hmm. the way that think of it, there's always going to be somebody willing to outbid you. Right. Even, oh, no, for sure. And even if they're running their business in an unsustainable way, so if somebody receives a ton of funding and they're going out or potentially they're hiring people at insane oh, absolutely. rates, like mm-hmm. just because they're, they could be out of business next year, or they could be cutting half of their staff because they did it in an unsustainable way. So you can't just look at a top bidder and be like, oh, we're not competitive. It's, you got to be competitive overall in the market, but never try to be the top bidder. And what you said, like, you don't need that, you know, in terms of like not offering other things. Offering other things for most businesses besides like the the best comp or, you know, a really kind of cool, compelling mission. Sometimes the mission could be like, we're going to help you get the most out of life professionally and mm-hmm. personally. We're going to provide a, a holistic package that has different things. We are going to, you know, I think uh, capping capacity, which you just said about 40 hour work weeks, that's huge. Like if you can guarantee to somebody or, you know, that the vast majority of the time, not maybe not guarantee, but you can say the majority of the time you're going to be working X amount or we're going to cap your capacity at this. People love that because so many companies don't do that. And the way that they built their margins as a company is that they have to push people like beyond their over allocate. Yeah. Yeah. And so they just create this burnout wheel, like flywheel and like, 
if you just max capacity, it's going to produce better outcomes for the customers. You're going to have better mm-hmm. retention rates, which I think is something else we want to talk to. Like you guys have a very low attrition rate, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's you know, traditionally 3% or less. I think during COVID, it got up around 5%, which would be high for us. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, again, like it's about how you treat folks, the opportunities you give them, and then also just kind of mapping, uh, maxing out capacity. Like, again, like I try to as much as possible view my role as CEO is to how do I help people working at this company get the most out of life, period, not just professionally, yeah. overall. How can I give them a great experience? And, you know, sometimes I can't. Like, to be honest, like in this market, we're doing recruiting in the tech industry. Like you know, a lot of companies are going through layoffs. It's not, yeah. you know, I don't have as many levers as I had last year to create great experiences. It's harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you always do as much as you can is the point. Yeah. And, uh, and I think when you do that, it's overall, you're going to win. You're going to get enough great people on your team. You don't have to appeal to everybody. You have to appeal to a segment of the market that you're, you're trying to attract. And hundred uh, percent. Yeah. Guy who's just looking at the, the biggest salary number, I, it, you know, I'll do the best I can, but probably not going to attract that person. Yeah. And it, you know, like sometimes going towards the biggest salary isn't even the smartest decision. You have no, to, you have to, no, it's it's hard to argue with people in that mentality, though. You know, it is. It is somewhat mercenaries, but uh, right. The, the flip side of that is, is that really the person you want working for you? Because our our corporate philosophy is we want this to be the best place in the world to work. You have to realize that there are certain constraints that we have. If we could pay everyone $10 million a year and give them 500 you know, days of PTO a year, we would. We can't. So within the boundaries of being a successful business, we want this to be the best place in the world to work. And I think uh, for the most part, our employees are bought in on that. The suggestions we get on how we can change a culture usually aren't just give us more money. They're actually things, material things that we can do to make their lives better that that just costs us a little bit of time and energy, but not necessarily bankrupt us. And, and that's great. That's a wonderful feeling to know that, you know, kind of we're all in this together. And I think there's a sense of, uh, you know, by keeping it transparent, you could pick any developer in the company and put him in my shoes. And would he make the same decision I made when it comes to all this stuff? No, it wouldn't. It's, you know, we, we're all smart people looking at the same financial constraints. We're trying to make this the best place in the world to work. That kind of naturally lends itself to optimize decisions around PTO and pay and benefits and work-life balance and, and all that kind of stuff. So the, the, if, if that's your culture, which I like to believe that, that ours is, is somebody who's going after every penny of annual salary, you know, their goals aren't necessarily aligned with ours. You know, we, we, we're, we're looking to do something more. We're looking to have a business that's both successful financially, but also successful with a core philosophy of treating people well. And that's what makes our clients want to engage with us because our folks are happy to come to work and, and they're, they're, you know, there's this there's a difference working with somebody who's fulfilled and happy and somebody who's miserable, you know, like who would you rather work with? Even for something silly, like if you went to Wendy's and you're going to order a burger, would you rather have a cashier who's happy to be there or somebody who's just absolutely miserable? Right. Right. And that's like the whole maxing capacity thing and building a business Mm -hmm. and pricing strategy and everything around like unit economics where people are not burning out is yep. great for business. Like we just did um, it is, our, yeah. our net promoter score. I don't know if you guys run campaigns like that, but we we send out, like we just did it for the first time. Actually, you guys probably got one, uh, but yeah. we we uh, rolled it out for the first time where we asked all our customers like, hey, how we're doing? And like we did the research and apparently like anything over 50% is considered pretty decent. We yeah. just concluded the campaign and we got 90%, which is like wow. basically unheard of. 
That's um, eye popping. That's a good one. Yeah, it's nuts, right? Like I was happily surprised. Um, I mean, I knew we'd do like well, like I had total faith in my leadership team and Bridget, mm-hmm. but um, you know, but damn, right? And like we're leading three categories on G2, uh, which is an online review site for the the tech industry. And I really do believe that like a huge, the, the the number one reason we've been able to do that is because we max capacity because so many recruiters are used to working in an environment where they're working on like 30 recs at once. They're constantly burnt out. And then like the hiring managers are pissed off because like they're not getting the results that the hiring manager wants to see. And so by doing that, we were able to attract a caliber of people that we had like before we did this, we had never been able to get. Like mm-hmm. it, it really was a game changer for us. And again, like I'm not putting people on Mars, like I'm doing recruiting services, <laughs> you know, but we've yeah. been still able to attract amazing people based on our mission, which is like to help people get the most out of life. Like for you, it's like being the best company to work for, like similar mm-hmm. philosophy, right? It's basically, I think very similar, if not the same, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, the, the, yeah. the reality is that people's productivity, it, it, it's scale, you know? Uh, do they have stuff going on at home? Are they physically tired? Are they sick? Are they happy to be at your workplace? And so how do you scale a business if you have more demand? You can either add more people or get more out of the people you have. And I would make the argument that happier people are more productive. You know, I'd rather have one happy person than two unhappy people. Or uh, even one happy person working 40 hours a week, I think, will beat the brakes off of someone working 80 hours a week. They may work 80 hours a week and get more done than that first person for maybe a month. It's not sustainable. And eventually it's going to come crashing down and you're going to see this productivity drop. So what are you going to do? You're going to hire a second person to work them 80 a week and a third and work them 80 a week. And that whole time, my one person working 40 hours a week is, again, beating the brakes off of your productivity. And, and, and that's what our customers are telling us. Why are your folks so much faster and so much more productive? Like these fundamental yeah. things, you know, we're all human beings. We're all on this planet together. None of us want to want to be worked to death or worked at, you know, every ounce to the bone. But when we're happy and fulfilled, we work harder. It's a fact. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, it's less productive to be too strict and put too much on people's plates. I mean, I, I remember yep. my first corporate job, I was a SDR for sales development rep for, you know, publicly traded company, staffing company. And the culture was very much like that, like, what do they call it? Like a bullpen, like where you're, everybody's mm-hmm. in the cubicle, like one big room, everybody yep. listening in on each other's conversations, like just hardcore old school fucking suit and tie sitting at the yep. desk. Like I'm very grateful for it, but like, I did not enjoy it. I appreciated the opportunity, but I did not enjoy it. It was really tough. And it was like one of those environments where you just like, even if you were having like, it was you're just some days, like you're just drained. Right. And like, you just had to sit at the desk and like act busy, but like your brain was fucking gone and you weren't being productive. Like it's just not human nature to just like, just grind it out like a machine every second of every day. And, uh, I think it probably actually like hurt results in many cases. No, no doubt. If an STR calls me and I can tell they're miserable, I don't want to talk to them. Right. Or like overly stressed or like have too high of a quota. Yeah, like yeah, they're yeah. gonna lose their job if they don't nah. impress you. <laughs> you no, know? nah, it's it's uh, it's absurd. It, it harkens back to a time of I've got a work gang digging ditches, and I need to yell at them to get them to dig that ditch faster. It, we we don't live in a in a workforce now where that's the case. Where where you know hitting people with a stick makes them work faster. For the most part, we're all knowledge workers, and that requires people who are rested and happy. Yeah. 
For sure. Hey, so we're we're kind of we're coming up on time here. I think we covered a lot of ground. I'm I'm really excited about this episode. A lot of value. A lot of value. So thank you. I, I would kind of be curious to get your thoughts on chat GPT, AI. Like, how do you think it's going to impact like technical roles over the next five years? What do you what do you think? It's interesting. I'm sure you've you've played with it and had it generate stuff and you go, yeah, this ain't bad. This kind of sort of tangentially got close to what I wanted. Uh, code that does that is some of the worst code you can put into a platform. Because a bad developer writes a bunch of code. It kind of sort of does what they want. And then they peck at it, make a change here, make a change here, make a change here, make a change here. And then finally, they get it working. It's got seven bugs, but they got it working and they call it done. A truly brilliant engineer is going to think for an hour before they write a single line of code. They're going to write it once. It's going to be done. Hmm. So you have the generative capabilities of the AI will be able to displace the bottom part of the market. But what you're going to get is code very similar to what the bottom of the market produces. I mean, by definition, these things are, are, are derivative. They're taking existing work and and just spitting it back out. If if the so- if you are having people write software that already exists, you're crazy. I mean, you should be writing something <laughs> new that doesn't exist, right? If it already exists, just go buy it. So I, I think there's a lot more fear there than than um, than reality. Um, like even take harken back to uh, the scare of the '90s. Outsourcing was going to eliminate all U.S. based consulting roles. And what do people find out? Well, in order for a developer overseas to be productive, you need a really good business analyst to capture requirements properly. And if you fed the requirements into the machine improperly, and the machine in this case was the offshore developers, you'd get a bad result. So how is ChatGPT going to be any different? If you feed in incomplete or, or bad requirements, you're going to get code that doesn't do the job. So for something really complicated, like say, I don't know, uh, tax law or uh, the navigation system for a space shuttle. By the time you write the requirements document and tweak and tune and put in all the cases and exceptions and then feed it into ChatGPT, you might as well have just programmed it. So, yeah, I, I like I said, I, I think it's going to displace the bottom bottom end of the market, but the, I, I, I think it's going to be a, a, a hollow promise in the sense that, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's not a true artificial general intelligence in the sense that it can understand larger goals. I mean, it, 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 what is this stuff under the hood? It's, it's a statistical inference of you asked for something, let me go find similar somethings and assemble them together and then present that back to you as the result. What about that? Would you say, yeah, that's going to upend our, 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 you know, our workforce of, of hiring, uh, Developers, it's incredible for things for very specific use cases. I've got support agents, they're constantly asked the same questions all the time from our users. We have this giant database of support answers, but they're asking the question in a slightly different way. Well, derivative of our support base, in a way, specifically answering that question is perfect, it hits the goal. You don't need that support agent anymore. There are certain uh, areas of labor in our economy where derivative work is perfectly fine and, and it will displace those jobs, but I don't think it's going to be higher end programmers. From like, okay, so let's say you take a brilliant engineer, like top tier engineers, right? 
Mm-hmm. Is there a way that they're, do you think like in the next five years, they're going to be leveraging AI to work more efficiently? Or oh, certainly. Like- no, absolutely. Yeah. You could see uh, a situation where they they plug in, hey, give me this, 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 and this, and assemble it together in such a way. And then that's a head start. They come in over the top and, and finish it. Uh, or it looks at code and makes recommendations. It finds certain patterns or things like that. But that that's just an improvement of tooling that makes developers more efficient. I mean, we right. we made them more efficient when we said, hey, here's the cloud and you no longer have to worry about infrastructure. Or here's more modern programming languages. So you're using uh, you know, Python or JavaScript now instead of Assembler or COBOL. Uh, you know, that the overall demand for programmers outstripped the productivity improvements that that we saw there. It didn't completely eliminate the uh, the industry. Yeah, those are all very good analogies. Thank you for sharing with uh, with our team here and everybody tuning in. Um, very valuable insights. I, I think this is probably a good a stopping point. Thank you. We appreciate you coming on the show. This was very valuable and I can't wait to have you back on. We got to do this again. Yeah, I, I likewise. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Of course. And for everybody tuning in, thank you for joining us today. Uh, We are releasing a new episode every Tuesday and Thursday morning at 5 a.m. Eastern. If uh, you or somebody that you know would like to be a guest on the show, we are currently accepting applications for VPs, uh, CEOs, uh, VPs, town acquisition, chief people officers, and and founder CEOs, presidents of uh, organizations to come on and talk about anything related to town acquisition, people, all that good stuff. So anyways, if you're getting value from the show, we definitely appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And uh, if there's any topics that you want us to discuss, you can reach out on talenttrends.io, shoot us an email and let us know which uh, topics would be helpful for us to review in a future episode. Thanks so much. And we'll talk to you next time. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode and gained a lot of valuable insights to help guide your talent strategy. I also want to say thank you to my team at Secure Vision for making the show possible. Secure Vision is the number one embedded recruitment provider, and we are a three-time category leader on G2. Secure Vision partners with over 150 companies to provide on-demand recruiters who specialize in either tech, revenue, or GNA. For more information, you can visit securevision.io. For more content, you can follow me on LinkedIn at James Mackey or on Twitter at James Mackey DMV. We've dropped links in the description. If you want to be on our show or have any topics you'd like for us to cover, reach out at breakthroughhiring.io. We really appreciate your support with reviews on Apple Podcasts. And lastly, make sure to tune in every Tuesday and Thursday for a new episode. See you next time.